0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this edition of the St John's Chambers Personal Injury Team podcast, and today the urgent hot topic of the upcoming and significant changes to the Quox regime. I'm James Marek, member of the Personal Injury and Cost Team, and I'm joined today by my colleague Rachel. Hi,
1: I'm Rachel Siegel. I'm a barrister in clinical negligence and personal injury at St John's
0: Chambers. News of these changes has been hard to miss, but whether this is breaking news or not to you, we're going to aim to cover the key grounds, the future issues that the rule changes might give rise to. So hopefully it's worth you listening to Rachel and I go through it. So
1: James, let's start with the basics. Tell us, how does Quox work at the moment?
0: Well, Quox works, I suspect, differently in certain ways to how the Rules Committee might have anticipated when Quox was first brought in. Cartwright and Vendup, a case many of you will have heard of, basically has the effect that says defendants can't enforce cost orders against most settlements, in particular where there's been Part 36 compromise or a Tomlin order's been reached. So if, for example, a claimant accepts a Part 36 offer late, the outcome is that the defendant can't set off its post acceptance cost against the settlement sum likewise to part 36 acceptance a defendant can't for example set off a cost order from an interim application if the claims later settled by say Tomlin order equally if a claim is discontinued against the defendant it can't cross enforce against any later settlement with co defendants so the rules have been interpreted by that Court of Appeal decision in Cartwright and Venduct in a way which works for claimants, but much less so for defendants. And all of this was confirmed as well by the recent Court of Appeal decision in Harrison and University Hospitals of Derby and Burton. For those that need it, neutral citation 2022-1660. And that case resolved some latent wrangling over whether there could be any deviation from the basic Cartwright and Venduct impact in cases of late acceptance of Part 36 where there were some residual issues and the court had to resolve those. So that's where quarks took us in terms of set off against settlement sums. But obviously there was another limb to it as well, isn't there, Rachel?
1: There is. And it takes to the Supreme Court decision in Ho and adder in 2021, which essentially says that the defendant can't set off costs against in effect. And so the reality is that CPR 4414, as it's currently drafted, in other words, before the 6th of April this year, the current 44.14 equally prevented the set off of defendants' cost orders against claimants' cost orders. And in that particular case, it's one in which the defendant, the appellant defendant, had managed to obtain a cost order in its favour from the Court of Appeal for a sum close to about £50,000. And the defendant wanted to set off uh, that sum against the claimant's cost orders of £17,000 or so. Now, the monetary cap was provided by any order for damages, because the Supreme Court was critical of this outcome. So the claimant could lose an appeal and still be insulated by the qualified one-way cost-shifting rules as, against set off against its settlement damages all costs. And of course, as I know this is something that you've written about in, in the past, you've got to look at Ho and Adelech and understand it in the context alongside Cartwright and Vendict engineering pretty much. But the reality is, as things stand, all of this, this whole position, is going to be reversed by the latest amendment to the civil procedure rules, at least for cases or claims that are issued on or after the 6th of April this year, after which time a defendant will be able to enforce cost orders against settlement sums, and that includes, crucially, Part 36 settlements and Tomlin order settlements. So essentially, the Rules Committee have effectively reversed Cartwright and Venduct.
0: They've gone further as well, haven't they? Because the defendant will also be able to set off cost orders against cost orders which reverses how touches upon where we all thought we were with how and MIB number two, and in essence, completely rebalances the rules. Exactly. What do we need to know then? So if somebody's only got 30 seconds left to listen to us, hopefully you don't, but we know <laughs> that the rules apply to all cases issued on or after the 6th of April, 2023. So 6th of April is a key date. The rule changes are going to give renewed bite to defendant part 36 offers, we think. The rule changes are going to give enhanced exposure to defendant cost orders generally. And I think the rule changes are more than ever going to require certainly claimant interest to put a renewed focus on informed consent and ATE provision.
1: Absolutely. So let's look at those in turn then, shall we, James? So starting off with how the rule has been changed, how that change has been achieved. For all claims issued on or after the 6th of April 2023, as we've said, a cost order that's made against a claimant will be enforceable, not only against orders for damages in favour of the claimant under CPR 14.4.14, but against, and here's the wording, any orders for damages or agreements to pay or settle a claim for damages, costs and interest made in favour of the claimant. So I'll repeat that. Any orders for damages or agreements to pay or settle a claim for damages, costs and interest made in favour of the claimant. A further addition to the rules confirms that orders for costs includes deemed costs orders. So how does that vary from what we've had before, James?
0: Well, before, the wording was simply limited to enforcement against orders for damages. And of course, we've looked at Cartwright, we've looked at how that is to be construed very narrowly. Now we have a, what's ostensibly a very unambiguous re-gearing to open up enforceability against all global sums recovered by the claimant. So there'll still be a monetary cap. But the monetary cap is not restricted strictly to orders for damages, and that means an open court order, but it's going to be opened up effectively to the global recovery against costs and damages. And
1: arising from that, I guess, for claimant solicitors, the immediate question is going to be, well, do I need to issue protectively ahead of this deadline of the 6th of April 2023? What's your answer to that?
0: my answer is it very much depends on the facts, of course. I don't think it's black and white. I know there's some school of thought which is, look, I need to get my claims issued. I don't think it needs to be a panic for claimant interests on this particular issue. In terms of golden rules, if a claim's approaching limitation or it's ready to serve, or it will be within the period for service of the claim form ready to serve, i.e. the usual four months, then it makes sense to issue, if only because the rule changes are adverse to claimant interests. At the other end of the spectrum, though, Rachel, I think it's a different approach. Would you agree?
1: I certainly would. But before we go further, I'd say, in other words, in relation to, to what you've just said, it makes sense, doesn't it, to limit the potential pitfalls likely to emerge for your client if you're a claimant solicitor, the position being created by the new 4414 being just one of them. But as you say, there's absolutely no need for a panic on this. But tell us more about the other end of the spectrum.
0: If your case isn't worked up properly, you don't know the shape of the likely case that you're going to be running. You don't want to issue to put yourself in breach of a pre-action protocol. It's going to bring you into potential difficulties with a defendant arguing that you've issued prematurely. And I suspect, and it's a theme I'll come back to, I suspect the rule changes are probably only ultimately going to impact a relatively small basket of cases. After all, it's never been in the interest of claimants to run cases against attractive Part 36 as you don't recover costs beyond the point of late acceptance, which hardly a positive outcome. Likewise, the loss of an interim application has always been a vicissitude of litigation. So, I mean, I've certainly... Been asked to advise upon a number of cases on both sides recently as to what the position should be. And on those cases where you're approaching limitation in any event, all your medical evidence is ready to go and you can reasonably value the case or provisionally value it, it makes sense to issue. You know, I think if you're many months off that stage, then it's probably not going to be worth running the risk, Rachel.
1: Okay. But, but there will also be, won't there, some borderline cases. I mean, as you say, It depends on the particular circumstances of any particular case doesn't it as to what the right approach is going to be but there may well be situations where there are nuances to be taken into account for example you might need to be giving rta notice of a claim if you're for the claimant and the defendant could seek to compel early service but generally speaking if, if you're in doubt what would you say probably worth seeking some short form advice
0: Yes, absolutely. And as I've said, I think the bark of the changes may be worse than their bite, Rachel. I mean, one practical point, I think, to bear in mind, the golden date, 6th of April 2023. If you're going to commence proceedings to avoid the change to the rules, your claim needs to be issued, not simply brought for the purposes of limitation, and not simply delivered to, say, the court office. Now, I suspect because of the use of the damages claim portal, that's not often going to be an issue because there's no lag between proceedings being brought and being issued because issues contemporaneous with the use of the portal. But something to bear in mind if you're hand-delivering claims to the court office, that there could be that lag and it's not going to bite.
1: Okay, so... We're starting to talk then about how the changes are likely to affect strategy and tactics. Let's carry on with that theme, shall we? What would you say as a starting point on that?
0: Part 36 is a lot of the litigation concerned with quarks and the existing regimes being concerned with the impact of late acceptance, in particular, part 36 offers. So, for example, as we've said at the moment, you make an early £50,000 offer and your defendant. Claimant's valued his or her claim at 200000 pounds They don't accept your offer. It's left on the table. You land surveillance 12 months later. They late accept your offer. They can't recover their costs from the point of expiry, but neither can you set off your costs post expiry against that offer. So the utility of part 36 has been diminished and it's had that tactical impact. Then again, you know, using even that example. I suspect practice, Rachel, has always been to take part 36s at face value. Certainly the advice I see to claimants is always still framed as if you don't beat this offer, there could be cost exposure. So I don't see a great sea change. At the same time, there'll be a basket of cases, I suspect, where a defendant makes an offer close to the mark ahead of joint statements or similar where the balance now tips into acceptance, where if the risk is run by a claimant, the value of the claim diminishes due to an adverse evidential change or likewise, then they're exposed to that cost order on late acceptance being set off. So I think it gives defendants renewed reason to make competitive part 36s, especially in cases where there might be concerns about the level of claim which has been presented and where the claimant may unravel later those offers can be left on the table with some real bite.
1: Yes, and also for defendants to make those well more realistic offers at as early a stage as they possibly can.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think the Quox case law has called into question for the defendants the utility of offers and actually whether or not they leave offers open or not. Now, Part 36 has been restored to its sort of full glory, as it were. And I think more and more, we'll see it being utilised and ought to be utilised by insurers to protect their interests. I've got to say, my own impression is, one of the areas where I think we'll see a potential real change is in relation to multiple defendant claims, where there probably needs to be some extra caution, Rachel, in claimants throwing the scattergun out early on in proceedings.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the moment, there is pretty good insulation in that respect for claimants. But now, of course, if you discontinue against one of several defendants, as in fact was what happened in Cartwright and Venduct, and then you later settle against the co-defendant, that discontinued defendant can, of course, press for its costs on discontinuance. Clearly, that that's going to have ramifications, isn't it? I mean, the incentive is going to be there for claimants to, uh, to always at least try to agree that on discontinuance, no order for costs, for example.
0: Exactly, and defendants are normally keen to be dropped out rather than running the risk of just incurring costs, which they're never going to recover, especially if there is some exposure to them on liability. I, th- I think claimants will need to be a little bit more cautious there will still obviously always be the utility of Bullock and Sanderson orders if they can properly join multiple defendants. And I think there's still some question marks as to how a co-defendant may keep their oar in after they've been dropped out to find out the details, for example, of any Tomlin settlement. Well, obviously, a conventional Tomlin order has the cost order in the open order. But, you know, query where we get to in terms of schedules to a Tomlin order and disclosure thereof.
1: Yeah, I just think we're going to see very much in the way of satellite litigation arising out precisely these sorts of issues, James.
0: I think undoubtedly, even if you consider that the rules are very black and white in terms of the monetary cap being on all damages and costs recovered, it's bound to give rise to litigation on some of these latent issues. The new provision makes it immaterial, probably, whether you settle on global terms or conventional terms equivalent to Part 36, because it's the whole sum which can be enforced against. But I suspect that there will still be ever-ingenious attempts to to try to circumvent or avoid the full effects and ramifications of the rule changes. We'll have to wait and see.
1: And also, I guess, given the rationale that's been provided for the rule change... I would have expected that any naked attempts at circumventing the change in rules are hardly likely to be viewed in a positive light by the courts.
0: Absolutely. The rules committee changes are very clear in their intended effect. And the court, I suspect, is going to interpret them in that way.
1: So staying with this theme then uh, a little bit longer of how these changes to quox provision can, how they're going to affect strategy and tactics. So let's have a little bit of a chat about interim applications, etc. You know, another thing I would throw in there would be um, CCMCs. so the approach by claimants listed to defendants' costs in the precedent are at CCMC stage, which of course is going to be something that will justify perhaps a bit more scrutiny than perhaps it might've done in some cases in the past.
0: The CCMC point's a really good one, Rachel. Um, The general approach at the moment is that, well, it's two way points actually, isn't it? Because at the moment, claimants don't tend to pay too much scrutiny to defendant costs because generally they can't be enforced. On this very same hand, defendants quite often don't pay much attention to defendant costs in a budget. But certainly in one of those cases, and one would suspect it might well be liability admitted cases where it's a quantum fight, where the defendant might well be able to protect itself with well-placed offers, then there's probably going to become a renewed focus on defendant costs for budgeting purpose. But, but likewise, Rachel, interim applications. Now, I will say, before asking for your views, I don't think there's many solicitors which say, well, we only fight interim applications because we know we've got nothing to lose. I I still take the view that the profession takes applications at face value in the first place. But it's always going to be a factor, I suspect, at the moment that claimants know that if they lose an interim application, that those costs if a claim settled, won't come out of the ultimate pot. They would, of course, come out of the pot if the matter gets to trial still on the present rules, which is why I suspect, you know, we're not looking at a complete sea change here, but any views which you have on this?
1: Yeah, I mean, if the defendant now obtains a cost order on any kind of interim uh, application basis, any kind of interim hearing, then that defendant is likely to at least potentially have those costs one way or another. And doesn't need to be nuanced in its approach to actually factoring them into discussions and analysis in the process of settlement because the defendant can settle and set off against costs or damages. So clearly that is going to represent a shift in, in thinking, potentially a shift in, in approach. Over time, anyway, and I do agree with you about applications being taken on face value, but exactly as you say, on those more marginal calls, they may well need to consider the approach that that is taken. Interestingly, also, I think we'll be seeing attitudes and approaches emerging differently from defendants who, uh, until fairly recently, may well have been feeling, well, you know, <laughs> it's all kind of one-way traffic on costs because of quacks. They may well be in that context emboldened to press applications where otherwise they might not, uh, not least because the opportunity for sensible cost recovery or set off of costs wasn't going to be an option for them, at least costs against costs wise. So I can well see that that is something that is likely to develop fairly quickly. Would you agree?
0: Oh, I think so, Rachel. We're going to have to see how things settle down, I suspect. And of course, there's a large number of cases which proceed fairly conventionally without interim applications, without protective offers being made both ways until relatively late on, for example, after witness statements and joint statements of the experts are exchanged. And in those sorts of cases, there's Probably not going to be a sea change in how things are dealt with. But it's very much reason for defendants to be less passive, to feel that uh, actually the rules are stacked against them, both in terms of costs and interim applications and the like. So it'll be interesting.
1: And similar factors surely are going to apply in those relatively rare occasions where a matter becomes subject to appeal as well. And so, you know, there may well be cases. Well, I know you've dealt with a number of Court of Appeal cases on liability where maybe the approach might be different post 6th of April 2023, assuming that obviously a claim has been issued on or after that date. That will be interesting. But what about on a more day to day basis? What about, for example, a potential impact on ATE premiums? Tell us about that, James.
0: I mean, when the quox. Quarks- Regime was first introduced as part of the Jackson reforms 10 years or so ago now. I suspect many would have thought that the utility of ATE was going to fall away. But actually, I think as a matter of routine, it's usually implemented on behalf of claimants to protect them against the prospect, even though it's relatively unlikely of an adverse cost order. But also, ATE can often pick up disbursements and the like. But certainly now, there's more reason than ever for ATE to be implemented and be ill-advised not to have ATE. And you know, clients are going to have to be given clear guidance, I think, on, on funding so they can provide informed consent on those sorts of issues. I mean, I've been asked recently, are ATE premiums going to rise? I come back to the point that there's still a monetary cap on what defendants can enforce against. So Quox still bites and protects claimants because any cost order in favour of the defendants can't be enforceable above the level of damages and costs. So I suspect the A.T. market, if anything, may react by ensuring that there won't be situations where it will be paying out on adverse cost orders in favour of the defendant, but the claimants and their representatives are recovering undiminished damages and costs award. Uh, And it might be that there's some rewording of of policies if they don't already deal with that to avoid that sort of scenario, Rachel.
1: Right, we're very much in wait and see territory, really, aren't we, in respect of the market responses on this and how, in fact, things are really going to pan out in relation to ATE insurers and and the approach to policies and policy premiums. I suppose it's going to be really tricky, isn't it, for claimant solicitors. When we think about the likely impact of all of this on the solicitor-client relationship and the way in which CFAs are going to be drawn, the way in which the question of informed consent is going to be dealt with, clarifying the cost exposure potential. I mean, in, in an notoriously labyrinthine area of law that gives lawyers headaches, never mind lay clients.
0: Absolutely, Rachel. And obviously, there's been the spate of recent litigation right up until Belster recently, which, which is bound to give rise to further appellate satellite litigation anyhow. But at the moment, a claimant can generally be advised, well, look, let's defend this interim application. Don't worry if we lose it because it's unlikely that the cost order will diminish any settlement in due course. There's going to have to be a focus on informed consent, a focus on well-drawn CFAs, I think, to address these kind of issues.
1: Yeah, and it's absolutely crucial, isn't it, that, that either way and however it is done, that a claimant, a client claimant is live to the cost risks on a claim and the potential impact on the sums in their pocket. It's not going to be something that's easy to deal with in the first instance. It's going to take several iterations, I think, for claimant firms to find the right form of words to do that particular job. I know it's something that, for example, they had to grapple with when the rules changed in, in respect of CFAs and AT premiums and their non-recovery, etc., it's not an easy task, let's put it that way.
0: Well, exactly. Let's just look at one example. Defendant obtains a costs order. There's then later settlement, 10000 for damages, £10,000 for costs. The change to the rules doesn't say you must take that against costs or you must set off against damages. It's just against the monetary cap. So again, how's that structured? It's going to be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how cfas are worded to deal with it rachel
1: yeah absolutely so looking at the changes overall just kind of drawing this towards a close some might say in fact some have said some legal commentators have commented that the rule committee has been pretty quick to act for insurance interest we know that as a general sort of trajectory there has been evidence of quite a strong pull, well push I suppose it is really isn't it, uh, from the insurer lobby and that's something that seems pretty clear. So it's come from the insurance lobby, it's come from to some extent other sort of more potentially politicised shifts but in reality there is going to be an impact isn't there but we can't forget that for cases claims that have been issued prior to the 6th of April 2023 and therefore for some time we are all going to still be dealing with cases where Cartwright and Ho and and remain good law.
0: Absolutely. There's going to be an impact. It might be more subtle than envisaged. I wonder in fact if it will be a situation where it mainly just rebalances those cases which a claimant who at the moment has to late accept a part 36 comes to a worse outcome than under the existing iteration of the rules. So a rebalancing in in those rarer cases, well, actually, there might not be a significant impact on some of the day-to-day cases, but we'll have to see. I mean, the position under the existing rules was fairly ambiguous for a number of years, I mean, a solicitor and counsel who'd come to me, even in the period well after Cartwright, to discuss the fact that they'd have to give credit for defendant cost on late acceptance as against the settlement sum, so, you know, when in fact Cartwright, as confirmed by by Ho said no, that's not the case. So it's will be interesting.
1: And actually, on that point, it's a good reminder there because there have been you know, on this this question of ambiguity and different attempts to sort of circumvent. Cartwright and Ho because actually think of the example in the High Court last year of Chapel and I don't know how to pronounce it but Morozek or Morozek and then of course Harrison which you've already mentioned uh, in the Court of Appeal in 2022. Unsuccessful attempts by defendants to circumvent Cartwright and Ho and Adeleken. So it's going to be interesting that we will be seeing these two different sides of the coin as pre 6th of April 23 and 6th of April 23 onwards issue claims come across our desks and before the courts.
0: Absolutely, it's gonna be watch this space. So I suspect we've covered the ground we wanted to cover, Rachel. I think we probably have. So claimant interest, you've still got time to issue protectively by the 6th of April if it's one of those cases where you probably need to. Defendants will no doubt be waiting with bated breath for the changes to kick in, ready to make a range of Part 36 offers to protect themselves. And we will have to see how this all lands. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Lovely to speak with you, Rachel. And you. We look forward to discussing future issues and to everyone tuning into later versions of the podcasts. Good day, everyone. Good day.